From Wall Street to Main Street, there are stories to be told. Where knowledge learned on the street is as powerful as knowledge learned on the streets. This is the Financial Recon Podcast, where we introduce you to the people, places, and things that have helped shape our environment and will help shape yours. Welcome to the conversation. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been a race like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. James Earl Jones' speech during Field of Dreams summarized things perfectly. And in honor of Black History Month, I'm thrilled to be joined by the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, Mr. Bob Kendrick, where we discuss the role the Negro Leagues had and continue to have in shaping the socioeconomic landscape of America. Bob, I, I cannot say what a privilege it is to uh, speak with you, and uh, thanks for making the time today to uh, join me. My pleasure, man. Uh, <laughs> thanks for the invite. Looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah, the, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and everything is just uh, an amazing experience for everybody, and it, it's really something that I tell people. It's like you got to visit minimum one time to really get the get the full vibe and see what's happening in that part of Kansas city, the revitalization and everything. It's, it's, it's awesome. And, um, you know, I just find it ironic. We're speaking today, the day after the hall of fame announcements. And, you know, I I just got to ask, what's it, what's it mean to you all to say Buck O'Neill is a hall of famer. Uh, I've been smiling since December 5th, around 5.30 Central Time. And I don't think I've stopped smiling since, you know, when my good friend Josh Rawich over at the National Baseball Hall of Fame, the president Mm -hmm. of the National Baseball Hall of Fame, began to read the bio. And all of us who had gathered here for a watch party, nearly 300 plus people who had gathered here for a watch party, we instantly knew. And there was just this elation, uh, a roar uh, of excitement and energy in that room. Even before he could even complete reading the bio, everyone was so excited. For me, I felt like, number one, I could exhale. I felt like <laughs> the weight of the world had been lifted off my shoulders. And, and then I became really overcome with emotions because, you know, now everything is cascading back to me in terms of what happened 15 years prior in 2006 when Buck missed by one vote. And I had to tell my friend that he didn't get enough votes to get into the Hall of Fame. And it was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do, both professionally and personally. And of course, who handled it better than anyone? Buck. <laughs> and, and But still, the fact that he's no longer with us physically, we know that his spirit is very much present here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, that made it a little bit bittersweet, but still the fact of the matter is it does not diminish the accomplishment because Buck O'Neill deserved to be amongst the immortals of our game. And it doesn't diminish the impact potentially that it can have for Buck's museum. Because had he gotten in in 2006, It was going to set off a tremendous fundraising effort to help support his museum. He wanted his Hall of Fame celebration to benefit the museum. And although he won't be here for us to chest bump 
and high five <laughs> and hug because that's what we wanted. Right. And, and we won't get that opportunity. We will still have every opportunity to do what he wanted us to do. And that is to continue to try and do whatever is necessary to make sure that his museum is healthy and whole and is on a firm financial foundation. And so this is very much exciting. Uh, but as I mentioned, the tears this time <laughs> were tears of joy. In 2006, they were tears of anguish. But this time they were tears of joy, elation. Uh, and everybody in that room felt that. You know, and so it was exciting. And like I said, I haven't stopped smiling since. <laughs> and so now that the calendar year has turned and we're deep into January now, almost, you know, time flies. Yeah, right. Uh, the month is almost over. And now we're starting to put the wheels in motion for a Buck O'Neill Hall of Fame celebration and a lot of other great things that are going to be happening with us here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in 2022. Can you tip us off on anything that's coming? Oh, yeah. No, you know, along with Buck O'Neill's Hall of Fame celebration, and we're planning two celebrations. We're planning okay. a KC to Cooperstown celebration and then a big Buck O'Neill Hall of Fame celebration back here in Kansas City in November that will be held in conjunction with what would have been his 111th birthday in November. So Saturday, oh. November the 12th, we are putting the plans for a huge star-studded gala celebration. And that's assuming that this crazy virus will loosen <laughs> its grip and that we'll be able to do these group gathering things and feel comfortable doing so. We certainly hope so. We're planning as if that is going to be the case. But as also, we just, in partnership with the U.S. Mint, released a series, the first ever series of U.S. Mint commemorative coins recognizing the Negro League. And these coins are beautiful. They're on sale right now at the U.S. Mint website. We're so excited about these because there obviously is a lot of prestige that goes in getting these coins. They're not easy. Mm -hmm. the, the Mint only awards two of these a year. Oh, wow. And, uh -huh, and it requires getting over three-fourths of Congress to sign off on the legislation to create the bill. And of course, as we know, there's not a whole lot of bipartisanship going on <laughs> in D.C. these days. And so in 2020, we were able to successfully bridge both sides of the aisle to garner the support that was necessary to create the legislation and ultimately a bill that was signed into law by President Trump at the end of 2020. Last year, I spent the full year working with men on designs and then uh, about two weeks ago, the coins went on sale and they're beautiful. Uh, a gold, silver, and clad copper coin that are now available. Each coin has unique designs that honor the Negro Leagues and the artists built around the theme of pride, passion, and perseverance. And for me, Mike, those are really the hallmarks of what really made the Negro Leagues so special. And oh, yeah. so... If we're able to sell through the full allotment of these coins uh, as allowed by the legislation, we could generate some $6 million in surcharges back to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So along with the prestige, there's some real financial ramifications <laughs> that are, you know, connected to these coins. And so... These coins can literally be a game changer 
for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So we hope people will support the museum by going out and buying a piece of this history. And this history is only going to grow in value. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a great way to support the museum, but also get something tangibly back that's going to just, again, grow over time in terms of its own value. And, and so we got a full year to sell through this allotment of coins. And so we hope people will participate and support this effort. Money making money. <laughs> that's what it's all about, man. That's what it's yeah, all about. It is. And, and you know, I got to confess to you, it's, it's funny, right? Like, and I say this, so, you know, I had the fortune of meeting Buck uh, two or three times in my life because I used to live in Omaha and uh, he came up for the Omaha Royals one time to raise awareness about the museum that I met him outside uh, Kaufman um, and someplace else. I can't remember, but I had a signed baseball from him. And when we got into our house, we put up like a, a display case. I have some hall of fame baseballs and I've always kept Buck in that case since I met him because I was like, Buck, Buck deserves to be here. You, just from, you were foreshadowing. <laughs> and, and, and so like, it just, when they announced that it like really just was like, he's, he's where he belongs. You know. He absolutely, he absolutely is. Uh, like I said, we are so proud. We're all very excited. Um, it means a great deal to Kansas City, but I think it means a great deal to the baseball world as well. Mm-hmm. People wanted Buck O'Neill in the National Baseball Hall, and it, it is long overdue. But it's, it, 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 as Buck would say, it's right on time. Oh, yeah. I'd say there's no fitting more or nothing more fitting than what Kansas City has named after him, right? With that bridge. Yeah. You know, the Buck O'Neill Bridge, a new bridge that is being built. We're building the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center at the site of the Purcell YMCA. So it's important to me, and I think it's important to those here in Kansas City, that Buck O'Neill is never forgotten. Buck O'Neill, for me, was one of the most amazing human beings to ever walk the face of this earth, who just happened to be one heck of a baseball player and one heck of a baseball ambassador. And But most of us, and I remind people all the time, most of us who fell in love with Buck Mike, we didn't see him play. Right. No, we didn't see him play. We fell in love with the Buck O'Neill who told us about the heroes of the Negro Leagues, and we fell in love with the Buck O'Neill who so beautifully and vividly demonstrated to all of us that you could indeed get further in this life with love than you could with hate. And that's what drew us to him. He, oh, yeah. he was a kindred spirit and uh, people were literally drawn to him and he was drawn to people. He wanted <laughs> to be around people. He was energized by people. The man never met a stranger in his life. If he didn't know you, <laughs> He was going to come up to you and introduce himself to you. My name is Buck O'Neill. What's yours? And, and then you would engage in a conversation as if you had known each other all your lives. And by the time you're leaving, you're sharing an embrace. You know, that was Buck O'Neill. He was just a beautiful human being. And that's what I think captivated me and others. And of course, the passion that mm-hmm. he had in wanting to see this history take its proper place as well. When I first met Buck in 1993, one of the first things that I asked him was why he wanted to build a Negro Leagues baseball museum. And Mike's answer was succinct. 
but also very poignant, so that we would be remembered. That's what he wanted. He didn't want people to forget what he and his colleagues had done in not only changing the game of baseball, but more importantly, the the change that they helped usher in in our country. And he's Mm -hmm. right. They shouldn't be forgotten. And for so many years, their stories had toiled in anonymity until this museum emerged to bring that story to life. And that is why I got involved as a volunteer in 1993. And that is why I am still involved (laughs) now almost 29 years later, just wanting to make sure that they are remembered. And they are remembered with the kind of reverence that they should be remembered for what they gave us, both on and off the field. Yeah, I mean, you you said it perfectly. Um, you know, you read Joe Poznanski's The Soul of Baseball. Yeah, yeah. And you you read that and you don't think these the the people involved with the Negro Leagues deserve that type of place. And I'm I feel sorry for you because, you know, like you said, Buck showed showed the the love and the the laughter that for some of those situations i mean like yeah. what was it what was the story about him and was it satchel page driving into a kkk thing or yeah, right. something <laughs> <laughs> like you know most people would have been uh, you well know, and that's what he gave us he gave yeah. us all of these great stories but mike more importantly he gave us a counter perspective of what the Negro Leagues were, because a lot of people want to naturally reflect on the hardships, the pain, Mm -hmm. life in a segregated society, which we know were absolutely challenging. Right. Buck O'Neill reflected on the joy that they had playing this game and the great times that they had hanging out with the entertainers, (laughs) you know, being stars within that segregated community. Yep. Yeah, maybe they couldn't go outside of whatever the 13 blocks were here in Kansas City in which black folks were isolated to. But man, they were big stars within this community. And everywhere they went, people wanted to be around them. As Buck would say, when they went in the restaurant, yeah, it may be a black owned restaurant, but when they went in the restaurant, they were going to get the best table. They were going to get the best service because they were athletes. They were stars. And so he lived that side of the life as well. Yeah, there was there pain and hardship? Of course it was. Right. You know, you're riding across this country and you're filling up ballparks and yet you can't get a meal from the same fans who had just cheered you. Right. Or you don't, they won't give you a place to stay. So you have to sleep on the bus and eat your peanut butter and crackers. So the bus becomes your refuge, so to speak. Did they like that? Of course not. But man, when they stepped out on that baseball field, none of that seemed to matter. They were going to put on a show and they wanted the world to know that they could play this game as well as anyone. And and so Buck gave us that perspective uh, as well. Buck was the consummate glass half full. Oh, yeah. (laughs) A lot of people saw the glass half empty. Buck saw it half full. Yeah. People would lament long bus rides. Buck say, oh, I got a chance to see the country. I got a chance to see the the countryside on those long bus rides. 
You know, so it was all about perspective with them. I forgot what his one famous thing, uh, his one famous saying was, but I, I mean, it was just contagious, you know, like, I mean, well, I shouldn't say one, there are a couple, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, like I, I gotta say with the, with the hall of fame induction, I mean, could you imagine him and big poppy uh, up there together? I, I don't, it, I think that oh, would have to be a multi-day. Oh man. The, the energy as Buck would say, that would fill the valley because that's what he called Cooperstown where they go out, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, because out in this big grassy area where they have it and the energy that would fill the valley on that day with Buck and Big Poppy, oh man, it would be special. We hope we can bring Buck's spirit to that Hall of Fame celebration. Mm-hmm. We hope that there will be a number of his fans who will join us on that journey to Cooperstown and fill the valley with Buck O'Neill's spirit and energy. And, and we know Big Poppy going to bring it. And, yeah. and so it's going to be very special. I'm so excited to see it. And I, I'm just, you know, the thing that I think about is like, this would, this would have just been like legendary, like Phil Rizzuto's uh, famous little <laughs> speech or something like that, because the consummate storyteller Buck is, yeah. I mean, as yeah. we saw when he did the induction for, the others it's i'm sure going to be a magical experience for you all and for all baseball fans and a, a celebration of the good of uh one of the good ball players when you know there's so much talk about the other stuff going on in baseball yeah. right now yeah. no it's, it's a great story uh that is being scripted by again a great human being who gave this game so much but buck o'neill to me, epitomizes the athlete that was in the Negro Leagues. Yep. And, and Buck O'Neill contributed so greatly to the success of this country. And he talked about the fact that he was so blessed to have been a part of ushering in change, but then living long enough to enjoy the change. Awesome. And then hopefully empowering others to continue this path of creating change that will make life better for all of his citizens in this country. And and that's what motivated him. And so he saw this country, you know, basically in across the full spectrum, you know, being the grandson of enslaved people and and then kind of witnessing things slowly, but surely start to change. Mm-hmm. And then being a part of that, he was a change agent. And, and that was really meaningful to him. And, uh, and so, yeah, he got to see this country through various lenses. And the thing that I admired the most is he never gave up on what this country can be and will be, you know, as it relates to opportunities for all of those who call this country home. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I love about the museum is it helps us have these conversations about race and unequitable treatment. Like, you know, like I said, I brought my kids there and my my daughter was like, whoa, like, I mean, she's she's now uh, uh, 10. I mean, yeah. so she was like six or seven at the time. But like it, it was a way to facilitate a conversation. You know, obviously, museums, the Hall of Fame, it's more than just sports. It's about educating what kind of educational initiatives are you uh, running through the museum? 
Oh, any number. You know, that's the thing that excites me because, Mike, as a museum, a history museum, Mm -hmm. a cultural institution, I just believe that it is so important that we establish relevancy for what the story means because our kids are very smart. They are so savvy and they are quick to say that was then, this is now. You got to be able to help them understand how then impacts now right. and, and how the now will lead us to the future as it relates to these stories. And so we started creating a number of educational outreach programs. We have a literacy program called Reading Around the Basics, where okay. we literally bring kids, a diverse group of kids onto the field of legends where the statues are. And we have athletes and other role models just basically demonstrate their reading skills as a way to help them understand the importance of reading. And they're reading from Negro League themed children's books. And then each child that participates in the program gets an autographed copy of the book. And then you hope that someone at home will read to them as well, because that's where it plants the seed in terms of how important reading is. So when you see someone you admire from afar, and they're just there demonstrating their ability to read and enjoying reading, we hope that that serves as this impetus for them to want to hone their reading skills, because that is part of the biggest challenge with particularly urban kids. If you cannot read, you have no chance. You right. have no chance in school. And, and that's what we felt like we could contribute. So that program is targeted for K through fifth grade. Okay. And, and, and then we have a program called Driven to Exceed, or Driven to Succeed, I should say. And it is a writing program where we encourage kids to write creatively. And it's all built around some subject matter themed off the Negro League. And so it could be poetry and spoken word. It could be essays or what have you. We want them to tap into their creativity around any particular topic or subject that we look at that we feel stems from the story of the Negro League. Mm -hmm. And then we have an art program called Project Retrace. Okay. And and Project Retrace is an art education program that we created a number of years ago that allowed children to, again, tap into their creativity. Because what we're seeing in so many schools is that that is being eliminated because the educators, yeah, the educators are having to teach to these testing standards and, and that's how they're being measured. So these creative outlets are being removed from the schools in so many instances. And so we created this art education program called Project Retrace, which actually became the precursor for our renowned traveling exhibition called Shades of Greatness. And so it is targeted at middle and high school students where we bring them into the museum. We introduce them to this story. We provide resource materials for them. And then basically we send them back to their classrooms and say, create a work of art inspired by what you learn. Now, for us, Mike, it really was never about the quality of the art. 
It was more so about the quality of the thought behind the art. Right. But what we found is, man, there are some tremendously gifted kids who just need this outlet to express themselves. And so we were getting great works of art uh, to the point that we were able to do art shows and these kinds of things. And then we took the same exercise and put it before a group of professional artists. We took them through the exact same exercise as we do with the kids, sent them back to their studios and told them to create works of art inspired by the Negro Leagues. The results was this amazing collection of 35 original works of art that make up our renowned art exhibit called Shades of Greatness. It is still touring the country to this day. It debuted in 2003, and it's all because of our Project Retrace program. And uh, we're working on a new pilot program called The Legend in Me, where we're going to have young people create basically oral histories about legendary Negro League figures and pull pull together a database of these biographical sketches of Negro League players as told and seen through the eyes of young people where now other kids can go to that database and learn about these players by seeing these kids tell them about, as opposed to old Bob telling (laughs) you about Satchel Paige. Here's a kid, your peer, that's now telling you why Satchel Page was the truth. Right. You know, and, and so it's kind of a peer-to-peer learning program that we've created, and we're piloting that program right now. We look to build a significant database of these bios and then make them available in a digital content-laden environment where kids across the country will be able to have access to these bios and stories. Wow. That's awesome. That's, I mean, like you said it perfectly. Like it's, it's, um, it allows people to connect at their level and through these expressions, I was involved with the children's museum, uh, here and you're right. Play, play and creativity, those things, what we need to do to tap those and get people to uh, express themselves. Yeah, schools are phasing it out. I see it with my kids. I mean, yeah. teachers are. So if we, whatever we can do, play is, I read a great article one time. It says, you know, through play and kids through varying ages, they all learn a different thing. Like, so if you have a two-year-old, a five-year-old, and a seven-year-old, seven-year-old learns to lead, two-year-old learns to follow, all those things. So, I mean, these programs are huge. And, and Mike, there's a reason that we remember the lyrics to songs 25, 30 years later. You know, there's a reason behind that because it stays with us. Mm-hmm. And for me, experiential learning is still the most effective way to learn. Now, you teach to these standardized tests. So what am I going to do? I'm going to do enough to pass that test. Right. I'm not sure how much I'm going to retain, however. But when I can apply an experience to what I'm learning, then it stays with me. And, and so I've always been a proponent of experiential learning. And and sometimes I think our school systems have gotten too far away from creating experiences. 
That's one of the reasons that we are right now developing as part of what will be the future Buckle Neal Education and Research Center at the site of the Paseo YMCA, where the Negro Leagues were formed, is going to be an interactive baseball experience that examines the math and science of baseball. Oh, wow. Because in talking with educators, we found out that where a lot of urban kids are lagging behind the national test standards happens at the middle school level. I think a great reason of that is they're not interested. Mm -hmm. So can we make math and science interesting? So the idea here was to apply it to baseball, which lends itself beautifully to math and science, probably as much so as any sport. And, And to take it a step further, add a Negro Leagues element to it. So, for instance, we will measure reaction time by what it was like to try and hit Satchel's fastball (laughs) at 105 miles per hour. Wow. Yeah, and we will measure turn angles and radius by examining the speed of Cool Papa Bell. Why could he circle the bases in 12 seconds when most fast guys, it's about 14 seconds? Well, now, some things just defy science. We have to accept that they just God gave <laughs> right. and, and the good Lord gave cool something. He didn't get the rest of us. But we will attempt to put a scientific theory to it because here's what we know. Cool Papa had the uncanny ability to cut the bag on the inside. As a matter of fact, Mike, he would hit the bag with his left foot on the inside of the bag. Okay. A lot of times, the umpires would thought that he missed the bag. Uh-huh. He was so adept at doing this, wow. where most people run through that bag. And then, of course, you got to make that big rounding turn. So while they're making that round turn, Cool is on the inside of the bag, and he's literally able to shave off almost two seconds. As Buck O'Neill would describe the way that Cool ran, he would say that he was so low to the ground that he could literally smack the bag with his hand and not fall over. Wow. Yeah. So that ability (laughs) to control your body lean is something that, like I said, the good Lord just gives some of us (laughs) some stuff that he don't give everybody. Yeah. Well, who had it? The satchel, (laughs) you know, that's what I was just, the person that I think of right now with him is uh, Jacob DeGrom, how, you know, he gets older and he gets better. And to think that satchel did that in that, time period when they didn't have all these special training no, no, diets no, and no no <laughs> no no uh and satchel was a premier power pitcher who pitched for decades and only had one small bout of arm troubles in the 30s and his the trainer the monarchs trainer nursed him back to health uh, I think it was in North Dakota where the Indian, on the Indian reservation, the chief made him up a concoction that they say was made out of rattlesnake venom and gunpowder. <laughs> and they say that it smelled awful. Uh, and they would rub that on his shoulder. He probably had a, a, maybe a small rotator cuff injury. Mm-hmm. And they rubbed that on his shoulder. He believed in hot water. He didn't believe in ice. Hot water. And his arm came back to life, and he never had any arm 
issues from that day forward. I tell my young athletes, particularly the young pitchers, major league pitchers who come here about that <laughs> concoction of rattlesnake venom and gunpowder. They're all willing to try it. Nobody wants to go get the rattlesnake venom. Though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would balk on that too. You know, one thing that I love about the museum is, you know, like we, I mentioned earlier, is it talks about um, unequitable treatment and allows us to have those conversations. But one area in particular that I, I really, uh, like I said, love is the fact that you place an emphasis on the role the women, that women played in the uh, history of the Negro Leagues. Um, can you kind of talk about that? Yeah, no, it's something that we tout because it's such a little known fact relative to the contribution of women to our sport, particularly as it relates to the Negro Leagues, mm-hmm. as there were three pioneering women who called the Negro Leagues home. They competed with and against the men in the 1950s, Tony Stone being the first of those three women to play. She was followed by Mamie Peanut Johnson and then later on, Connie Morgan. Again, they were all pioneers competing with and against the men in the Negro Leagues, with Tony being the first of those three women. Mamie Peanut Johnson was a five foot three inch pitcher with a wow. strong right arm. She was striking those fellas out. <laughs> and uh, I, I'll never forget the story that she tells first game playing against the Kansas City Monarchs and a guy named Hank Bayless. Hank Bayless was a really good ball player with the Monarchs, had a great career with the Monarchs. And Hank Bayless doesn't realize that Peanut is a, a woman. And so when he gets in the batter's box, he looks out and he finally realizes that this is a lady out on the mound. And he looks out and he says in a very condescending fashion, what you doing out there? You ain't no bigger than a peanut. She promptly struck him out. (laughs) Uh, uh, And she was peanut from that day on. And I got to know her. I didn't get to know Tony. Tony had passed away before I got involved with the museum. And so did Connie Morgan, who hailed from Philadelphia. All three were tremendously, tremendously gifted athletes. And but I got to know Mamie Peanut Johnson, spent quite a bit of time with her and uh, was honored to speak at her funeral services in 2017. They were all special. But then there were also three women. Well, I should say there were also women who were executives. They were leaders. They were owners of teams, the likes of Olivia Taylor the wife of the late C.I. Taylor, who, when C.I. Taylor passed away, took control of the ball club and ran it beautifully. Many Forbes, who are still with us, were, uh, ran the Detroit Stars. And, of course, the most noted of those three owners, Effa Manley. Effa Manley ran and operated the Newark Eagles. Uh, and Effa My Manley, neck of the woods, I remember that. Yeah, my, Effa, my dad told me about them. Effa Manley knew the business of baseball as well as any man. Mike had tremendous talent play for her teams. She had the likes of my dear friend, the late great Monty Irvin, Larry Doby, Leon Day, Willie Wells, Biz Mackey. All of these players are in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. The late great Don Newcomb, who in my opinion should be in the (laughs) Hall of Fame all play for Effa Manley's Newark Eagles. Did, did Willie Mays pl- play there briefly? He, he didn't play for Effa. Okay. Uh, Willie played for the Birmingham Black Barons. Okay. Um, but uh, Effa Manley is the first woman 
to be nominated and inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And so for us, it is with great pride that we tell the story of the contribution of women to this sport, and particularly as it relates to the Negro Leagues, because in the final equation, the Negro Leagues didn't care what color you were, and they didn't care what gender you were. Can you play? Do you have something to offer? And, and that's really the way that it is supposed to be. Right. It's not that way, but that's the way that it is supposed to be. And that's why I tell people, Mike, that the Negro Leagues or this incredible story of the Negro Leagues embodied the American spirit, unlike any story in the annals of American history. It is indeed everything that America prides herself in being, even if she's not there yet. And, and I tell people because she's not there yet doesn't mean that she's not the greatest country in the world. It just means that there's still work left to be done. We are all every day, or we should be trying to improve as human beings. So why wouldn't we expect that our country should be tasked with trying to continue to grow and improve as well? And it's our job to do that. And then it's our job to empower our young people to continue to do that, you know? And so, but that's what true progress is all about. And yet the Negro Leagues refused to treat others the way that they had been treated. And to me, that's where the compelling nature of the story comes into play. Oh, absolutely. And so that leads me to ask this question. Um, who, who do you think is the most overlooked uh, Negro Leagues, like Hall of Famer. Ooh, man. There's a bunch I, I of them. <laughs> There's a bunch of them, but the, the name that probably comes immediately to mind for me is the great Cuban ball player, Martin Dejigo. Nicknamed him El Maestro, the master, because he could do it all, Mike. Played oh, all wow. nine positions, played all nine of them well. He is the only baseball player in the history of this sport to be enshrined into five different countries, baseball halls of fame. Wow. He's in the Mexican, Cuban, Venezuelan, Dominican, and in Cooperstown. And so you come here and you hear about a player of this magnitude and you kind of just scratching your head about how in the world could I not know this name? And most people don't know the name Martin Dejigo. They should. But he's just one of so many. Oh, yeah. 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 He's one of so many. You know, in, in my podcast, Black Diamonds, right. I talk about the story of Wilbur Bullet Joe Rogan. And as Satchel Page would say, in typical Satchel Page vernacular, <laughs> that Bullet Rogan was the onlyest player he ever saw that could pitch and hit in the cleanup position. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And that was Bullet Rogan. Bullet Rogan was one of the great two-way stars of the Negro Leagues. And that's why we were all so excited about the excitement of Shohei Atani doing what he did this past baseball season. Because what did it do? It led people to want to talk about the great two-way stars of the Negro League. Mike, this league was chalk-filled with two-way stars. 
The I Negro believe leagues, it. Well, they had to have it yeah. because your roster sizes were not as large as a major league team's roster. So you could not afford to have a four or five man pitching rotation that that's all they did. <laughs> you had to have versatility in your lineup. So most of the pitchers in the Negro League, number one, were great athletes. Number two, they were all great hitting pitchers. Now, Satchel wasn't a great hitter. When Satchel got a hit, he was going to tell you about it. But <laughs> Satchel was so dominant, he didn't need to hit. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Wrapping things up, I got two like uh, yeah, two yeah. important questions uh, I wanted to throw at you. This one is from my daughter. and. Because she is uh, studying about or getting ready for, you know, Black History Month, different uh, individuals. And she was talking about Jackie Robinson. And she wanted to know, why did Jackie Robinson choose baseball over football? Yeah, because and that's a great question, because a lot of people don't know that Jackie Robinson's weakest sport was baseball. Hmm. Yeah, Mike, he was a much better basketball, football, track athlete than he was baseball player. Some say an even better tennis player. So there was nothing that Jackie Robinson couldn't do, but baseball was his weakest sport, and he turns himself into a Hall of Fame caliber baseball player, which tells you how exceptional an athlete Jackie Robinson was. But to your daughter's question, really, Basketball and football were still more or less seen as collegiate sports. Even though you had the professional leagues, nobody really was paying them any attention. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to play a professional sport and make a living doing so, most of the great athletes moved to baseball. And so the great black and Hispanic athletes were playing baseball in the Negro League. The great white athlete was playing baseball in the major leagues. And... uh, That is what ultimately drew Jackie to baseball. The great Hilton Smith saw Jackie Robinson pitching, or playing baseball, and I'm not pitching, playing baseball at Fort Hood in Texas. Mm -hmm. And he recommends Jackie Robinson to the Kansas City Monarchs owner, J.L. Wilkinson. They tried Jackie out in Houston, Texas uh, in 1945. And Jackie makes the team. And little did J.L. Wilkinson know he had signed a man that was ultimately going to put him out of business because by September of that year, Jackie was gone. He had literally disappeared. His, even his teammates had no idea where he was. And as we now know, he was, had been kind of whisked away to go meet with Branch Rickey, where the two of them made the monumental decision that Jackie would be the guy that would attempt to break Major League Baseball six decades long self-imposed color barrier. And the question that is so commonly asked to me is, was, was Jackie the best player in the Negro Leagues? No. No. He wasn't the best player on his own Kansas City Monarch team. And Mike, by no stretch of the imagination is that to disparage Jackie Robinson. Because as I just mentioned, he's one of the greatest athletes in American sports history. It just speaks to the immense talent that was there in the Negro Leagues. Mm-hmm. But Jackie absolutely was the right man to be the first. He had what I like to refer to as the intangibles that better prepared him to deal with so much racial hatred that was going to come his way. Mm -hmm. He had been a celebrated collegian at UCLA. 
uh, as your daughter referenced, an all-American football player. You know, we're talking about one of the greatest backfields in collegiate football history when you talk about Jackie Robinson, Kenny Washington, and Woody Strode that formed that backfield at UCLA. Wow. Kenny Washington would break the color barrier or re-break the color barrier in the National Football League. Woody Strode would become a great actor. So he had been an All-American football player. He's college educated. He had served in the military. He was disciplined. He would become married to the beautiful Rachel Robinson. He was stable. All of those attributes would be called upon to deal with the racial hatred that he would be confronted with. I remind people, when Jackie Robinson walked out on that field as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers on April 15, 1947, he was called everything but, as my mother would say, but a child of God when he walked out on that field. (laughs) And man, when he came to the plate, they knocked him down continuously. When he would slide in the second base, he would oftentimes come up wet where the opposition had spit on it. When the opposition slid in the second, they came in, spikes high, trying to cut it. They did everything imaginable to break Jackie, but Jackie would not break. You see, some of those other Negro Leaguers, Mike, who had been so acclimated to segregation, they couldn't have handled it. So had you thrown a black cat on the field, say, when Willie Wells walked out on the field, Willie Wells going to pick that black cat up and throw it right back where it came from. But man, it would have been so easy for the naysayers to say, see, I told you they couldn't handle it. But if Jackie can't play, the naysayers would have said the same thing. I told you they weren't good enough to play in our league. So Branch Rickey had a double difficult task of identifying the right guy. Because again, keep in mind that failure was not an option on either side of the equation. So if Robinson can't take the abuse, the experiment is over. If he can't play, the experiment is over. We don't know how long it would have been before another black man would have gotten an opportunity to play in the major league. It could have been 20 years later. And, and, And I challenge my guests here at the museum to think about this. If it's 20 years later, think about the great stars we would have missed. We'd have missed Willie Mays. We'd have missed Henry Aaron, Ernie Banks, Roy Campanella. We'd have missed Roberto Clemente and likely Bob Gibson. Can you imagine our sport without those great stars? And and if you can, you can imagine what it was like before 1947 because they didn't learn how to play baseball after 1947. They were playing great baseball well before 1947. And so Jackie chooses the sport that was going to give him the best opportunity to make a living for his family. And that's why he gravitated to baseball as opposed to football. Well, there you go, Abs. Mr. Kendrick gives you the answer for uh, your schoolwork. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, we would be remiss to say Kansas City. Where is the barbecue joint we're going to find Bob Kendrick at? Oh, man, you trying to get me in trouble. I know. That's like like asking me which one of my children I love the most. (laughs) I mean, my personal, I I, I go to tourist. When I say that, I give probably the tourist answer that I say Jack Sack, but that's my Yeah, and and see, for me, I'm a Gates man. Okay. But let me me confess (laughs) that Ollie Gates, the owner of the great Gates chain of barbecue restaurants here in Kansas City, 
is helping me build the Buck O'Neill Education Research Center. So- <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. We, I mean, well, that's you gotta uh, gotta keep the donors happy. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, there's something that I like at almost every one of them. Oh, I'm sure. and, and there's there's no shortage of great barbecue restaurants in Kansas City, and you know, you you can ask ten people and they get ten different answers. Uh, but man, they're all delicious, and so. I love being able to uh, frequent them probably a little bit too much. Not good for my <laughs> diet, but we certainly enjoy it. Yeah, I know when I've been in the plaza, that's that's uh, my magnetic draw is over to Jack Stack. So <laughs> that's see, where... now you got me thinking about burn-ins now. So. Yeah, see, I mean, <laughs> sorry about that. Well, you know, being in Carolina here, we, my <laughs> wife may drag me out now to go get some barbecue too after she listens to this. Um, Bob, thanks so much for your time. And um, uh, where can people uh, follow along and catch your podcast and everything? Yeah, no, you can go anywhere where you get subscribed to get your podcast, Spotify, Apple, the pro- podcast is called black diamonds. Uh, if you're so inclined, follow me on social media. Uh, my Instagram and Twitter username is NLBM Prez, P-R-E-Z. The museum is on Twitter and Instagram, and it's NLB Museum KC. Or, or visit our website at NLBM.com to learn more about the things happening here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and to hopefully become a member, buy your merchandise. So many different ways in which you can support the work that we're doing here in Kansas City. Highly encourage it. So thanks a lot, Bob, for your time. It was uh, great having you. Mike, it's my pleasure, man. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us today. To continue the conversation, visit us at our blog, financial-recon.com. Appearances do not constitute endorsement of flagship wealth management group, LPL Financial, the Pinnacle Financial Group, or any other entity discussed in this program. Securities offered through LPL Financial. Member, FINRA, SIPC. Investment advice offered through the Pinnacle Financial Group, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from LPL Financial. The opinions voiced are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance reference is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. This information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized tax or legal advice. We suggest that you discuss your specific situation with a qualified tax or legal advisor.